welcome to Wrestling at Random. I'm Jeremy Deemer. And I am Adam Summers. This is the podcast where every week we review a classic pro wrestling event from a streaming service. That could be a pay-per-view, a, a major live event, a TV special, pretty much anything that is not weekly TV. And Jeremy, finally, finally this week, the randomizer decided to go more in the direction of the other podcast that I've been doing for 15 years. I am very excited about the show we are reviewing tonight. Yes, we've got uh, <laughs> we've got something new from the randomizer we're very excited about. And we always know that, you know, sometimes it'll be something good, something bad, something fun. We got a lot of good and a lot of fun to talk about tonight. So I'm pretty excited too. And uh, let's let's get right into it. Let's let's not waste any more time. Yes. So the show we are reviewing is New Japan Pro Wrestling from their Fighting Spirit Tour in 1995. And for a little bit of backstory on New Japan, for some of those uh, listeners that may not be quite as familiar, uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling was founded in 1972 by Antonio Inoki after his departure from the JPW, the Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance. Uh, The first New Japan event took place on March 6th, 1972, in the Oda Ward Gymnasium in Tokyo to a crowd of 5,000. By the way, this is the same building on the same date that they still uh, hold their anniversary shows every year. Uh, The following year, in 1973, New Japan signed a TV deal with the TV station that became known as TV Asahi, where their half-hour weekly TV show still airs to date. Uh, The company was overseen by its governing body, the International Wrestling Grand Prix, and Hulk Hogan became, uh, of all people, the first IWGP heavyweight champion in 1983, right around the time, Jeremy, is our uh, our AWA Super Sunday show that, that we talked about uh, in recent weeks. Uh, Hogan became the first IWGP heavyweight champion, defeating Antonio Inoki. The concept of New Japan Pro Wrestling was strong style, and their moniker was the king of sports. While the phrase has since been watered down to indicate hard-hitting, stiff pro wrestling, strong style was originally simply a marketing phrase used by New Japan to promote Antonio Inoki's mixed quote-unquote wrestling matches against kickboxers, judokas, karate fighters, and pretty much any other type of fighter out there. Fast forward to 1995, when this show takes place, Antonio Inoki's career is beginning to wind down. Uh, He's in the the early stages of a years-long retirement series, and New Japan has three new stars that have been firmly entrenched in their roles. Keiji Muto, Masahiro Chono, and Shinya Hashimoto Uh, in the early 90s, became among the top stars in the company. The Three Musketeers, as they were dubbed, had dramatically different styles, but were all legitimate needle-moving stars. At this time, New Japan also had a strong working relationship with WCW that would culminate in the WCW versus New Japan Pro Wrestling best-of-five match series later that year at Starcade 95 in December. At the same time, New Japan was also uh, just months away from an interpromotional feud with the financially failing but but still very compelling uh, UWFI group in Japan, a shoot-style oriented group led by Nobuhiko Takada. Uh, the interpromotional feud would do massive business for New Japan. And also as a side note, uh, as legend goes, Eric Bischoff, having been at one of those shows with that invasion angle, uh, supposedly on the plane ride back to the United States, came up with the idea for the NWO invasion of WCW later in 1996. 
So with that, Jeremy, let's move to February 3rd, 1995 in Sapporo, Japan for the New Japan Pro Wrestling Fighting Spirit 95 Tour. We're in the Nakajima Sports Center. 6,000 fans in attendance. This is uh, the second to last night. The next night of the tour would be a 6,500 fan sellout. And we'll, we'll make mention of some of the matches that take place at the next night's show. But tonight we're talking about the February 3rd show. Um, so if we, we, we have six matches, there was a, uh, a few other matches of, of note that happened on the card that we don't have available to us on this show. So we're going to cover six matches from the show tonight. Yes, it was a 10 match card. Uh, really the most of the noteworthy matches are on the broadcast version on new Japan world uh, that we watched. Uh, quickly, the other matches that aren't on this took him into Ishizawa, who would go on to be Kendo Kashin, who actually had just recently worked as a, a coach in the WWE Performance Center of all places, defeated a young Yuji Nagata. We had El Higante uh, of WCW fame at the time, who would go on to also have a truly terrible match with Nails uh, of WWF fame in New Japan, maybe the worst match in New Japan pro wrestling history. But here he had defeated Black Cat and Tatsuhito Takaiwa in a handicap match. We also had Akira Nogami and Takeyuki Azuka, who would go on many years later to be the crazed Takashi Azuka in New Japan, taking on Ron Simmons and Flying Scorpio, who was also Tukold Scorpio, and then Asumu Kido and Ricky Choshu defeating Hiroshi Hase, and probably the second worst IWGP heavyweight champion of all time, Tadao Yasuda. Those are the matches that are not on this broadcast, and for the most part, you're not missing miss anything, anything we, no. other than <laughs> us just making a lot of fun of El Gigante, sadly. Um, and, and probably, I imagine, the Nogami Azuka scorpio Simmons match would have been good. But I think we'll be fine without those. We've got Junior Tag to open this up. We've got uh, uh, Sinjiro Otani and El Samurai teaming up to take on Koji Kanemoto and Gran Hamada. Yes, and this is a it's a fascinating combination. I mean, you have uh, Shinjiro Otani who had debuted uh, around three years prior, and even though he was still technically a young lion, uh, which is basically the the phrasing in New Japan for a young wrestler who is still a trainee, he is wrestling, but he's also helped setting up the ring, he is taking a beating in the dojo every day. Uh, Otani was kind of on that borderline, but was still considered a young lion even though he would move into the junior, uh, the IWGP junior heavyweight title picture this year. Uh, you have him teaming with El Samurai, a masked wrestler who is very good. Uh, not the, the most purely athletic guy ever, but he made up for it with just timing and being a, a very good crafty wrestler. They're taking on Koji Kanemoto, who had just a year prior lost his mask. He was the third Tiger mask. He lost it to Jushin Liger. Uh, in 1994 and actually two weeks after this show that we're reviewing here uh, Kanemoto went on to win the IWGP junior heavyweight title he is teaming with Gran Hamada a legendary uh, figure in pro wrestling both in Japan and Mexico a a Japanese wrestler who who spent a lot of time in Mexico brought a lot of those things back to Japan and in a lot of ways is the, the grandfather, the forefather of the quote-unquote Lucharesu style that ended up influencing uh, Mishinoku Pro, Dragon Gate, Toriyaman, and really a lot of the, uh, the Lucha style that 
came into Japan and then we saw it become a big part of the U.S. indie style years later. So interesting combination here. The first thing I notice about this match is that the referee is not Japanese. Who is this guy? No, I'm 99% sure this is a guy who would go on to be ECW referee, John Peewee Moore, who I believe was a part of the, the New Japan Dojo at the time, was an aspiring referee and got kicked out for some reason. But I'm pretty sure that's who this was. I looked it up and wasn't able to get 100% confirmation, but the timeline seemed to line up. Uh, interesting that John Pee Wee more many years later was basically Sabu's personal referee uh, on the indies. So Kanemoto's got a knee pad over his taped up knee and every move that Otani does early is targeted to the knee right away. It's basic, but solid and it's back and forth action. And, and I really enjoyed a lot of that early. Um, the action picks up with Hamada getting thrown across the ring by Otani, just thrown across. <laughs> yeah. Big backdrops. Uh, Hamada takes this backdrop. He twists in the air to land on his feet, and then Hamada puts Otani on his shoulders, like electric chair position, tags in Kanemoto, who delivers a drop kick off the top. Yes, this was basically the, the doomsday device style here, uh, drop kick. Early uh, early in the match, and kind of in a strange spot in the match, but it was visually awesome. And then from there, we see Kanemoto hit a, uh, a huge Liger bomb, the sit-out power bomb, where in midair, you throw your legs over your opponent's arms for A, more impact, and B, to immediately be in a, in a very advantageous uh, pinning position. And this got, for very early on in the show here, this got the biggest pop of the match. Absolutely. It was only a two-count, but a huge pop. Kanemoto... Uh, Gets Otani in a lion tamer esque version of the Boston Crab. Yep, with a foot on the back of the head, and it's it's notable here too that Koji Kanemoto, even relatively early on in his career, like he he had graduated from young lion status, but he was still very young. He was starting to display a lot of the the prickish borderline heel <laughs> tendencies that you would see from him uh, years down the line. A very good wrestler, never a Never necessarily a, a full-fledged heel, but he was certainly uh, the most aggressive guy in this match. Yeah, and you mentioned it. And he, he's Instead of going down to a knee in that lion tamer position, he just puts his foot in the back of Otani's head, and it, it looked brutal. And and like we've mentioned before, that's a that's a move that should be brought back now. I really yes. it. I also really like the way he got into that move. It was a back heel trip, and then he did this flying spinning toe hold that you really don't ever see anyone do unless you dust off your N64 and play No Mercy <laughs> or any of the other uh, THQ, WCW, or WWF games from that time period. Absolutely love that. It's It, it would probably uh, blow Dory Funk Jr.'s mind if someone showed him that high-speed uh, <laughs> spinning toehold uh, backstage at one of the shows that, that we've reviewed with Dory Funk Jr. from the 80s. So... Uh, El Samurai hit a brutal powerbomb on Kanemoto. And Samurai is holding Kanemoto as Otani comes off the top of the dropkick. But Kanemoto moves, and Otani hits his partner, Samurai, with the top rope dropkick. Samurai's out on the floor, and that's when we get the first... Uh, we get a big leap from Hamada off the top rope onto Samurai, who's down on the floor. And Otani then springboards onto the middle of the top rope and dives onto Hamada on the floor. 
nearly landing face first on that one. Absolutely terrifying. Yes. This was awesome. Uh, Otani, this, yeah, this is a springboard. As, as the Japanese announcer said, a swan dive plancha, and it was absolutely a swan dive. He got a ton of air. And if you, if you haven't seen Shinjiro Otani before, even after he was a young lion, he wrestled in the most basic gear possible for many, many years. Uh, blank black trunks, short white boots for a long time, no knee pads. But he was a guy who had so much physical charisma. And he was also a guy who, uh, while he was a junior heavyweight here, and he was for the majority of his New Japan run before he went elsewhere, he had the frame to go heavyweight. And you could see that here, which makes it even more incredible to see the uh, just the way he soars on this dive. Everybody's down after these dives. Um, Kenamoto gets a backbreaker, followed by a top rope moonsault onto Otani. But Samurai in it too to break up the pin. And that leads us to the finish when Otani and Kenamoto exchange a series of reversals. And this Both- is awesome, by the way. This is If you were watching this match, what you were hoping for was to see a great exchange at some point between uh, Otani and Kanemoto, and that's exactly what we got here. Absolutely. Just trying to exchanging reversals, both trying to hit a dragon suplex, and Kanemoto ends up countering into a roll-up, gets a three-count. Super fun tag match. Yes, absolutely. It was one of those matches that it'll be kind of a, a theme for this show and a theme for for the company at the time, which is a good thing that you had matches that started out slow, not, not good. I mean, they were started out good, but they just started out slow. And then they built to a crescendo had a really exciting finish and they ended when they should have, which that's exactly what this was. And you also knew that, that down the line, there would be far better matches, far more dramatic matches, matches in, in bigger spots between these men. Um, Kanemoto and El Samurai a couple years later had an incredible match, one of the best uh, matches of the 90s in New Japan and one of their best junior heavyweight matches all the time of all time, I should say. So, yeah, this was very good. I do also just want to point out that we are firmly entrenched in the BVD sponsorship era of New Japan <laughs> Pro Wrestling. In case you were wondering what the visuals were of the uh, the ring mat here, still the, the cerulean blue mat, but... Uh, BVD, get your underwear sponsorship going here, apparently, for, for New Japan at this time period. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. That two years after this match in 1997, Samurai defeats Kanemoto in the f- final match to win the Best of the Super Junior Tournament. And uh, Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer gave that match five stars. So yes. just two short years from this match. Absolutely worth going out of your way if you have a New Japan World subscription. That then brings us to the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. Norio Hinaga defending the Junior Heavyweight title against Dean Malenko, the man of a thousand holds. Uh, The backstory here with these two guys, Norio Hinaga was uh, a journeyman type, certainly nowhere near as flashy as the Junior Heavyweights that WCW fans were aware of from New Japan Pro Wrestling, like Jushin Thunder Liger, who is not on this show. Uh, But Hanaga at this point had been a three-time junior heavyweight champion, but he was just, you know, again, not as spectacular as some other guys. He defeated Wild Pegasus, which was the name for Chris Benoit, in September of 1994 to win the junior title. Meanwhile, Dean Malenko, you might watch this show and think, well, New Japan has a relationship with WCW. This is in 1995. Malenko must have been here as part of a WCW exchange. Incorrect. Dean Malenko was actually the ECW World Television Champion at the time of this match, it was obviously not title versus title, 
Uh, Malenko did not go to WCW until later in 1995. September, yeah, September 1995. Also a note in that Dean Malenko wrestled with his brother Joe in the rival promotion to New Japan, that being All Japan Pro Wrestling, in the late 80s and early 90s. But he was uh, a a New Japan semi-regular at this point. Yeah, in 1995, Dean Malenko would not only, like you mentioned, uh, was the ECW television champion, but he would also win the ECW Tag Team Championship also in 1995. Yep, just uh, I I think maybe a month or so after this show. So this was a time where you had a lot of guys, uh, American wrestlers, North American wrestlers, splitting time between Japan uh, and the United States. And like we were basically on the cusp of a lot of these guys ending up in WCW. I will also say just quickly before we get to this match, uh, I I go back in my head to many, to several years prior uh, when the only way you could really follow Japanese wrestling um, as a kid was just reading the results in PWI. And I remember being just absolutely just completely bent out of shape over the fact that Jushin Liger lost the IWGP title to some guy named Norio Hanaga. Like, I just remember being so upset. So it's funny to go back and watch something from give or take a year or two around that same time period and see Hanaga here just just doing his thing. Yes. So watching him do his thing, you had every right to be mad. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Well, he was Hanaga is the thing I'll say about him as we get into this match is that he was there's several guys on the show. We'll, We'll mention a few of them later where they're completely unspectacular pro wrestlers. But the thing that you can say about them is they are 100% solid. Everything so they do is they fine, so fundamentally sound. And there's there's nothing you can say that's bad about them, but they are just less compelling than other guys. And that's that's sort of where the, the realm where Hanaga felt in, uh, fell in here. Before we get into the, the actual match itself, I did want to bring up a little bit about the presentation. Uh, watching this back on New Japan World, the show has no entrances, all the intros are done with guys already in the ring. Yes, we and start with the reintroductions. We don't start with with guys no entrances, down the ramp, right? Which yeah, there was a there's a big ramp. There's laser lights at the end of the ramp. Even though this is a you know an arena that holds about sixty five hundred from a visual presentation. Um, granted, we don't see the entrances, but they do a good job of making it seem like a really big show. Uh, the one thing I will say, I despise, and New Japan does this much more in modern days than I would like as well. I hate when the hard cam is facing the ramp so that you barely actually see any fans on the hard cam shot and you don't really see the fans' reactions to stuff. That would be really one of the only production quibbles, I guess, that I have with this show. And because of the the music... Uh, right after the match, we cut to silence, no crowd, no announcers, silence. It's very weird. Uh, we yeah. miss the entire crowd reactions or announcer reactions. So it's it was hard for me to know if, if everyone was excited or angry or, or anything because it literally just drops to silence as soon as the, the hand hits three. So Yeah, it's a little jarring, particularly if for anyone, if, if you haven't, done a lot of exploring of the new Japan world uh, archives. Most of the shows, most of the matches are like that just due to music rights issues. So yeah, I guess just buyer beware going in on that. So the match starts, we've got good Matt wrestling early. There was a really cool exchange where, where both men were standing, exchanging chain wrestling holds 
and Malenko just drop kicks the knee out from Hanaga, and yes. Dean goes right to work on the knee and leg. There was also an awesome spot where uh, Hanaga sort of hits a cradle and then comes out of the cradle holding on to one leg. Malenko sort of bridges up, kind of feeds him the other leg, and then uses those uses both of his legs to throw him off, kind of like a twisting uh, Boston Crab style counter. But it was just a cool, interesting thing where, like from a kayfabe standpoint, he he baited him into taking the other leg so he would have the power of both legs to throw him off. It, it was a reminder of just the the subtle brilliance of Dean Malenko. Yeah, so technically sound, so good. All the we you know we love the little things here on this podcast. So so this is a match. Filled with them and filled with uh, Dean Malenko uh, and his great ideas. Well, and great. The other thing that was just great about him was his. We talk about wrestlers, and we'll have one in the main event who is probably the the king of this. That have a unique way of moving and just do things differently, even the little things. And early there are some things with Malenko, just the snap on certain things. Like he has a uh, he great finds Hanaga's leg and then just bridges back at warp speed bridges back perfectly just to put more uh more torque on the leg uh and then he he does the sort of for lack of a better term the flying rear end drop onto a guy's leg and, and spins into an indian deathlock super quick goes for the Clo- texas cloverleaf his finisher and gets kicked off a couple times but just right away you're if you weren't familiar with dean malenko or you hadn't seen him in a while you're like oh yeah this is going to be good and dean malenko's great yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned quickness because that's the real story here is this is 1995. And so while these two are having a great mat wrestling, technical wrestling match, they're not high flying all over the place. It's the the junior heavyweights being showcased as so much quicker than the heavyweights, especially when you look at what else was happening in America, in a, in WCW, in WWF in 1995, you would have well, never think seen about that. our our in your house show that we reviewed the debut episode of this podcast and episode think about some of those matches. Think about yep. Yokozuna and Mabel obviously is an outlier in terms of just two gigantically <laughs> huge guys. But even matches with with smaller wrestlers, it was you know you mentioned this off air when we when the randomizer chose this show and we talked a little bit about it. That really you go back to 1995 and that in your house show and there was really only one guy on that entire show that worked at a pace that was even close to what these guys were capable of working. Yeah. It was a Sean Waltman one, two, three kid was the only guy that was anywhere near as quick and definitely, you know, it, the, the level of crispness and creativity that, that these two guys had was uh, really uh, ahead of its time for, for 1995. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there, there should be some, we should give uh some 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 love to Norio Hanaga as well because yes. again even he, though he, he was could not hang. the most he could he's hang. not the most compelling character in the world some really cool unique stuff one of the moves that I we again a running theme on this show moves you'd like to see coming back and that running neckbreaker drop clothesline kind of uh, a if you're for fans of Bret Hart the Bret Hart half of the heart attack uh, heart foundation finisher that was a move that that Hanaga would go back to again and again uh, with much success in this match. And that's something I'd love to see return. One of the 
early points in the match, uh, there's a nerve hold applied to the shoulder of Malenko. Yes, nerve and- <laughs> hold. I was not expecting that here in this match. No, and Malenko's struggling to get out, and he he you know the little things you were saying that that he does that's that's Malenko style. He's he's wiggling his fingers, trying to keep feeling in his fingers while in the nerve hold. I, I love it that. Was- Yep, I had that marked down as well in my notes. That was one of, honestly one of my favorite things about this entire show, a nerve hold where he he is, it appears as though he is feeling the pins and needles in his hand that we've all had when you just fall asleep in an yep. awkward position and your hand falls asleep. That's what he was doing here. It was fantastic. So Malenko backdropped over the top to the floor. Hanaga tries a dive over the top to the floor, but crashes and burns. Absolutely brutal. Back and Malenko in, then drives him into the rail before they go back into the ring. Yep. And then back in the ring, uh, Champ follows up with a superplex by... Uh, he, he follows up with the superplex uh, going to work and on... Malenko the- goes to the top to try to, to follow up on what happened on the floor to go for more offense, but uh, Hanaga surprises him and catches him with the, the second rope superplex that also almost murders the referee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then uh, he follows that up with another one of those running neckbreaker drops that I that I talked about loving so much. And then hits a beautiful running drop kick to the knee that, again, the greatness of Dean Malenko here. Malenko gets drop kicked in the knee and he straightens his leg out completely. Uh, you know, like it like the knee got pushed back and it's almost like, you know, inverted hyperextension. This was fantastic as well. Yep. Followed up with a figure four in the center of the ring. Um, we get Hanaga to the top rope. He hits an Elbow drop off the top, very well executed. I thought that was one of his best moves of the match. Yes, it was a very heavy uh, elbow drop. Again, if you're familiar with Japanese wrestling, almost very similar to the elbow drop that Satoshi Kojima likes to throw. Obviously, Hanaga, a smaller guy here, but yeah, that was awesome. Malenko gets him in the Texas Cloverleaf, and Hanaga is able to crawl to the ropes for a break. Malenko with a picture-perfect German suplex, followed by a Northern Lights suplex, still only a two-count. And a Northern Lights suplex executed a little bit differently. This is at about the 15-minute mark, like you said, the the attempts at the Texas Cloverleaf. And then the Northern Lights where he hooks the leg at the end of it. And I, I part of me wonders if that was just something they told him, hey, we need you to do this move a little bit differently because Hiroshi Hase uses it as his finisher. Mm. Maybe not though, because we had a few other instances of uh, of moves being, you know, major finishers being used by similar guys. But I thought that was uh, an interesting little uh, little difference, I guess, in doing that move. Finishing sequence saw Hanaga leap onto the shoulders of Malenko who just ends up dropping him down face first. <laughs> I love yeah, that. Yeah, so this was, you talk about that electric chair position. He just dropped him as hard as you could face first. Just before that, by the way, I wanted to mention leading into this finishing sequence, Hinaga hit an awesome sort of like counter. He got thrown into the turnbuckles, jumped face first up to the the, the second turnbuckles, and jumped back with sort of a, a twisting second rope sunset flip that, that got a long two on Malenko. And then Malenko, so right after dropping him face first, Malenko jumps on him, tries a headlock, gets reversed into almost a a crucifix for the pin. 16 minutes and 15 seconds, still champion is Hanaga. Awesome match. 
Yes, this was really, really fun. Again, started off slow, but the slow stuff was compelling, the mat wrestling, and then that finish where it was basically, the, the announcers called it a la Mahi Strahl, but it was basically a Mahi Strahl without the uh, the spinning in to start it. Uh, but yes, a, a cradle for the win. Uh, a very good mat-based match. Like I said, Hanaga is completely unspectacular, but super solid. Dean Malenko is as Dean Malenko as you would hope for here. So, so yeah, very good. I guess if you watch modern day New Japan, but haven't gone back and watched older stuff, to me, Hinaga is almost similar to a, a Yoshinobu Kanemaru in that he's not the flashiest guy, but everything he does is executed uh, picture perfectly. So, yeah, this was super fun. So, in September 95, Dean Malenko would go to sign with WCW. And that brings us to our next match where we have a familiar WCW faces in yes. Rick and Scott, the Steiner brothers, taking on Nakanishi and uh, uh, Kenzuke Sasaki, who uh, we know we saw earlier in the Clash of the Champions uh, episode two, uh, 1992 review. Yes, it's, and there's some interesting parallels here between both Nakanishi and Sasaki. Uh, at that point, like we said, in 1992, uh, Sasaki was on his excursion from New Japan Pro Wrestling, where they would pretty often send their young lions after they spent several years paying their dues. They would get sent to or get sent to the United States or Mexico or Germany uh, or other places in Europe, go away for a couple years and then come back as more of a star wrestler. That was the case here for Sasaki. He came back. And at that point, he, he became the tag team partner of Road Warrior Hawk as Power Warrior. This show here is one of the first shows after he had dropped that gimmick as his full-time character and was beginning to get a push as a top singles guy in New Japan. Meanwhile, his partner, Manabu Nakanishi, was just months away from going on his excursion to WCW, where later in 1995, he would be renamed Kurosawa, and be managed by Colonel Rob Parker. So this was basically in the, the waning months of, of Nakanishi being a young lion in New Japan. They are taking on, like you said, Rick and Scott Steiner, who were longtime members of the WCW roster, had gone to the WWF in 1993 and 1994, left the WWF. They were primarily wrestling uh, tours for New Japan at this time. And then in just a few months... They would join uh, ECW and do some shows for ECW starting in July of 1995. And then the following year in 1996, uh, they rejoined WCW. Nakanishi is, even as a young lion, a significant upgrade over Eric Watts for uh, for Sasaki <laughs> as a tag team partner. Yes. It is a bit jarring to see here, though, for Nakanishi. If you've seen him, you know, he just retired. We just in saw the retirement tour. Yeah. <laughs> yep. In February of uh, 2020. Uh, or if you even saw him months later in WCW in 1995, he would be much bigger uh, musculature wise than he was here. This was the smallest physically that I could recall seeing him. He was still big, but he was not the uh, he was not he was not partaking in the monster morning breakfast that he would for many, many years <laughs> after this. Nakanishi starts with Scott Steiner, and we start with Matt wrestling, amateur wrestling, with Scott in control. 
uh, he's he's pretty big. Scott's yes. <laughs> he was Scott's still firmly guy. entrenched in athletic Scott Steiner mode, but he was a huge man. It's also noteworthy here, and to me, it was one of the fascinating parts of this match that Manabu Nakanishi was an Olympic wrestler in 1992. So you have that that element coming in in terms of Rick and Scott Steiner, both with strong collegiate uh, collegiate wrestling backgrounds, and they are they are going in hard here on Nakanishi and, and, and testing themselves against a, an Olympic level athlete. Nakanishi with control rams Scott into the buckles and power slams him. Uh, Rick comes in. Barking. Yes, the Oklahoma Stampede, the, the Dr. Dusty Williams-style yeah. Oklahoma Stampede Nakanishi used where you, you get the guy up in the body slam position, run him back first into the turnbuckles, and then run him back to the middle of the ring for the power slam. Uh, lots of Rick Steiner barking. Uh, Nakanishi throws a drop kick, and Rick does not care and because he's still barking. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we also had, don't forget, the Cobra Clutch Giant Swing. That's that's right. This was a move that occurred. He uh, he asks for Sasaki to get in the ring, and Sasaki obliges. So and these two men have sorry to jump in, but these two men have history. If you remember the first WCW New Japan Super Show, the match of the year in 1991 was Rick and Scott Steiner. It was title versus title, the the WCW World Tag Team Championships versus the IWGP Tag Team Championships. Steiners versus Kensuke Sasaki and Hiroshi Hase. The Steiner brothers won the belts uh, in that match. They would lose them back a couple months later. But you, these guys would always interact with each other when either when one was in WCW or one went to New Japan. They were always uh, they were very similar wrestlers, so it, it 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 played into all of that. Rick hits a clothesline, a Steiner line, if you will, on Sasaki, who pops right back up. Another Steiner line pops right the back first- up. Steiner line was super weak, which was weird. I was expecting the normal Rick Steiner Steiner line, and it was not that. Not then that, the second no. one, he 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 got all of it on the second one, <laughs> but pops right back up and uh, hits a clothesline of his own. Rick goes down, and the crowd pops big. Immediately followed up with Sasaki catching Rick Steiner and power slang power slamming him. And people love Sasaki. Holy cow, was he popular. Yes. And this was an awesome spot. It was Rick uh, doing going for a leapfrog and, uh, and Sasaki ducking under and hitting the power slam. And again, this is a move that Rick Steiner uses as well. So this was the, the crowd pop for this. The Steiners had, uh, uh, you know, they were completely credible by that point in New Japan. They were considered huge stars. So uh this match was it had the requisite level of heat like you said and people were they were enjoying themselves some sasaki on this show we saw scott steiner put nakanishi in an stf and sasaki had to break that up we got more steiners beating down nakanishi uh he's put in the stf by scott for a third time and sasaki breaks it up again kicking scott but then he also kicks his partner i didn't know what was happening there this was great this is we've seen this in recent years in new japan with yuji nagata teaming with young lions where like (laughs) you know they they make the save but then they're also they're 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 not thrilled with the performance as of yet in this match from their uh their protege and so they're going to kick them as well to let them know (laughs) hey Get going. Uh, I need you to do more here than you're doing. Uh, you, you mentioned the the third STF attempt from Scott. This was preceded by a massive 
uh, release German suplex from Rick yes. Steiner on Nakanishi here. Uh, the Steiner brothers, Rick in particular, Rick had no problem. If you were a young guy in Japan, if you were a, a prelim wrestler in the U.S., Rick, you were going to have to earn respect from Rick Steiner in a match for him to not drop you on a, uh, on your head without a care in the world. And uh, apparently Nakanishi had not yet earned that respect from Rick. Nakanishi ends up hitting a German suplex on Rick, allowing him to finally get the tag to Sasaki. Clotheslines and power slams on both Steiners. Sasaki puts Rick in an armbar submission hold. Uh, so I don't know what the what, name of this is. So that move is called the power strangle. Preceded by that, that was his submission finisher, but preceded by that is one of my favorite moves in all of pro wrestling, the reverse Ippenze. It is a, a judo takedown. That's after he hit the clotheslines and the power slams. He throws Rick off the ropes, or Rick comes off the ropes, and he hits him with this judo throw where he basically all in one fast motion as the guy is running toward him, grabs the the opponent's arm like over his head and just in one motion whips him over and lands on him. An awesome move. Scott comes back in, trying to break it up with forearms to the back of Sasaki, but he won't break the hold. <laughs> Nakanishi's in, so it breaks down into a four-way. Uh, Nakanishi picks up Rick into a torture rack type position across his shoulders. Sasaki yep. comes off the top rope, hitting Rick with a double axe handle. Rick and Sasaki start fighting on the floor. Scott's in the ring with Nakanishi, puts him up on his shoulders. Rick to the top rope, hits his bulldog for the win. Steiner brothers are victorious. Absolutely. This was a fun match. I Again, enjoyed this, was... this hard-hitting fun match. Absolutely. Yes, it was one of those where in the time period you're watching it, you know for sure exactly what the finish is going to be. One of the Steiner brothers pinning the young lion. But the, the journey is is the fun part, how you get there and sort of, if you're watching the product all the time, kind of charting the growth of the young lion. You know, six months ago, he may have tapped out to a Boston Crab or been pinned by a non-finisher, but here it took them, you know, hitting one of their mega tag team finishers to put the man away. So, yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. It's I've yet to see a Steiner Brothers match in Japan that I haven't found enjoyable, and this uh, this certainly didn't break that mold. Um, I did not find this next match enjoyable. Uh, <laughs> Mike this Enos. Was a, this next match, and it's fitting because Mike Enos is in it. This is the equivalent of like an eight-minute non-title TV match that would have been on Monday Nitro uh, you know, a year or two later. That's, that's what this was. Yeah, this was... Uh, n- uh, not my favorite. Mike Enos against uh, Hashimoto, who was your IWGP champion at the time. Yep, Shinya Hashimoto, uh, the IWGP heavyweight champion at the time. He had had a very brief appearance in uh, in WCW in the NWA World Tag Team title tournament in 1992. Uh, originally teaming, I believe he teamed with Hiroshi Hase in the first round. Hase got hurt. Uh, and so then in the, the next round of the tournament, which was like a month later, they brought in, I believe, Akira Nogami to be the tag partner. Maybe I've got that transposed. But regardless, that was really the only appearance of Hashimoto in, in WCW. He was a, a not overly tall, very stocky guy who just had great, again, great physical charisma, great correction, uh, connection to the crowd and was a, a hard striker, particularly with his kicks and his overhand chops uh, taking on 
Mike Enos, who who you may remember from the Beverly Brothers tag team in the WWF uh, in the early to mid '90s, he prior to that teamed with his uh, Beverly Brothers tag uh, tag partner Wayne Bloom as the uh, the, like the Destruction Crew or something in the AWA. AWA that you could actually yeah. you could hear the the announcers reference that a few times on the show. And then. Uh... You would also know Mike Enos with a claim to fame later in 1996 as uh, the guy that was, he was in the match that was interrupted by Scott Hall starting the NWO invasion angle. Exactly. Scott Hall interrupted the, I believe it was Mike Enos and Steve Dahl, uh, which (laughs) I remember watching Nitro that evening. And even at that point in 1996, you got some weird matchups on Nitro. But I, I did not quite understand why I was seeing Mike Enos versus Steve Dahl. Like those were two guys that you you would be seeing lose to someone in three minutes on Nitro or more likely on WCW Saturday night at that standpoint. But obviously uh, that was a setup. Scott Hall uh, crashing the, the proceedings. So we've got an aggressive quick start for Enos. Uh, on the floor, Enos pulls back the mats and slams Hashimoto on the concrete floor. This was nasty. This is, oh. by the way, this is a non-title affair. Yes, it was a, a non-title match. And uh, back in the ring, these two end up going back and forth. Uh, Enos back in command after a power slam for a near fall on Hashimoto. What is going on? Um, overhead belly to belly and a fallaway slam by Enos. Both of those were actually pretty impressive. He was perfectly fine here. Again, like Mike Enos was not a great wrestler, but like he wasn't embarrassing either. It was just a, it was a weird match and a weird spot on the card that was basically just a match for Hashimoto to have before he would have his IWGP heavyweight title match the following night. Enos off the top. He's off the top rope. Uh, countered by an Insiguri by Hashimoto. This was awesome. This to me was the spot of the match. Enos 100%. goes for like a top rope, top rope shoulder block. And the timing here is very difficult to be able to land, not a drop kick, but an enzigiri uh, for a, for it to look like Enos is coming off the top rope for something other than just to get kicked in the head. Like he did a good job of it looking like he was going for something. And the timing from Hashimoto, like he caught him flush on the side of the head, which is exactly, you know, the intention of that move. And I feel like this was the first thing Hashimoto really did in the match. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. He did not do a ton. Uh, other thing we should mention, by the way, uh, you could make the argument that Mike Enos wasted too much time here to get to the top rope because he had to pull the straps down Jerry Lawler style uh, to, to fire up appropriately, I guess. Hashimoto tries for a DDT, hits it, but it was weird. So then he hits him with it again, this time really nails it and gets the pin. Hashimoto yeah. is your winner. I think what happened here is that Enos wasn't familiar with the type of DDT that Hashimoto did. Hashimoto at this point, he did like he would run into doing the DDT, which is different and unique, but he would run and then he would hook the guy and then jump into the DDT. And basically the moment that Hashimoto hooked Enos, Enos started going down for it, like going down to the mat. And so it almost had more of like a weird, like reverse neck breaker type of look. But then, yeah, he, uh, he hits it again. The camera completely missed it, but I, I have a theory on this. I'm, okay. I'm guessing that this is, you know, this is post-production, uh, obviously not like done in 2020, but this, this match, this show was post-produced for 
Japanese television. And I'm willing to wager that he probably, this DDT got even more messed up on the second one than the first one. <laughs> totally possible. So they switched, they switched the floor camera, which completely missed the DDT because otherwise the hard camera would have completely picked it up like it did the prior one. Uh, there was one other spot. I, I'm not sure if I put it in my notes, but there was one other spot on this show that had a similar weird camera switch that made me that that yes, seemed like I it was will, on another botch. I will, so I yeah, think, I will yell about that later. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that that's, that that's what happened. And when I saw that, I immediately thought, I know what Jeremy is doing right at this point. <laughs> he is screaming. So, uh, so yeah, Hashimoto did next to nothing here. Uh, but the next night, he would defend the IWGP Heavyweight Title against Tenzan, who we get in our next match. We've yes. got Tenzan and Harada versus uh, Hiro Saito and Masahiro Chono. Awesome. Uh, this I was pretty excited when I saw who was in this match. Uh, I thought we were going to get uh, a, a good match, and I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the match starts... We with Chono like in mid promo when the yes. clip begins, and... putting the bad mouth on on uh, <laughs> Tenzan presumably here. Which before we get into the match, I just want to jump in sure. with a few a few notes. Uh, Hiroyoshi Tenzan, who is still uh, he, his career is winding down in New Japan, but he is still in New Japan uh, in 2020. Uh, at this point in 1995, he had just returned one month earlier at New Japan's uh, big January 4th Tokyo Dome show. From a two-year excursion, as we talked about earlier, uh, that wrestlers go on a two-year excursion to Otto Vans' Catch Wrestling Association in Germany. Uh, Tenzan returned. Uh, he had wrestled before under his real name, Hiroyoshi Yamamoto. Here he returned as Hiroyoshi Tenzan. He would go on, as you said, just two weeks after this show that we are reviewing to wrestle uh, Shinya Hashimoto for the IWGP heavyweight title. Also a note that after uh, a short time after this match in 1995, where, as we see here, he's wrestling against Masahiro Chono and Hiro Saito, uh, he would join those two to form a, uh, a heel group called Team Wolf. Uh, meanwhile, the, uh, his partner, Junji Harada, uh, had previously wrestled under a mask and would go on to wrestle under a mask again later in his career as Super Strong Machine. Uh, they take uh, they took on, as you mentioned, Hiro Saito, who uh, is not Mr. Saito, if you're not familiar, overly familiar with New Japan, but you remember Mr. Saito. Uh, Hiro Saito was just uh, sort of a, a tag team journeyman utility guy, was part of a lot of groups. Again, sort of in that uh, Norio Hanaga mold, but as a heavyweight, a guy that was not uh, not overly spectacular, not overly charismatic, but just solid as hell in the ring and fundamentally sound. And he was teaming with Masahiro Chono, who uh, made many appearances. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> made many appearances in WCW. And here, this was the early stages, uh, the early years of the the Chono that most people know from his his time in WCW. The clad in all black, uh, wearing the sunglasses, just the absolute coolest guy in the room. Uh, but just a few years prior, he was you know your more technical babyface, more of a Bret Hart type of character held the IWGP title, held the NWA world title, and in a match in 1992, had his neck broken by then stunning Steve Austin uh, from a sit-out tombstone pile driver, which is ironically uh, some five years later, around five years later, the same move that would break Steve Austin's neck 
uh, when delivered by Owen Hart. So some weird and sad trivia there. Uh, but that neck injury would forever change Chono as a wrestler. He, while he was still very good in the ring, he he was never quite the same. He he couldn't take quite the same punishment for the most part. Obviously, having you know healed from a broken neck, but what he made up for in that was uh, he tapped into just incredible charisma, incredible presence, and uh, one of the most compelling characters of that era. Um, in a lot of ways, as a wrestler, even though the characters aren't a hundred percent one to one. Uh, character-wise, you could almost compare him to uh, Tetsuya Naito now in that uh, just a guy that was a completely unique, uh, had a completely unique presence. And while he wasn't necessarily often the IWGP champion, he was the guy who a lot of things revolved around. Tenzan jumps him immediately and tries to press slam Chono and then just loses him, drops him. <laughs> I, I, so I, I was, I was excited for this hot start, and then I was like, "What the heck? Come on, Tenzan!" Um. Well, it was, it was weird, just in general, seeing Tenzan here because I mean, obviously <laughs> he's younger, but like young Tenzan is fast. He's fast. And that is strange. He's mobile. He not, he's mobile, and like he, he's for a long, long time, like he never came off as the most athletic wrestler you've ever seen. But here he was, he was. He was big enough to be a heavyweight, but he could move. It was odd. Harada and Chono brawl off the ramp into the crowd. I can't see what's happening until someone holds up a row of chairs over their head <laughs> and slams yes. it on the other guy. <laughs> yes, this was fantastic. I could not tell who did it to who because no. <laughs> they, they did not have a camera on the ramp shooting down into the crowd. And the hard cam wasn't able to pick this up, but it was it was the requisite level of chaos that I wanted to see, given the uh, the the hot start to this match and the uh, the bad mouthing at the start. It should also be noted that that Junji Harada is just an absolute brick house of a human being. <laughs> Back in the ring, Tenzan is beating on Saito while staring down Shono the entire time. Hashimoto is shown shirtless and sweaty at ringside. <laughs> yes, back, he's, he's wearing gear, shirtless and sweaty from the very little that he did in that match. And he's got his awesome white headband back on again. He's surveying the landscape, scouting, knowing that Tenzan is his next challenger just in, uh, in 24 hours. Chono tags in with Harada and the crowd starts buzzing. Uh, he... Holds up for a long, delayed brain buster, and that got lots of ooze from the crowd. Ooze and ahs on that one. Chono and Tenzan are in together, back and forth. The pace is quick. Drop toe hold by Chono, goes for his move, the STF, but Tenzan gets the rope before he can really lock it in. The crowd is really into all things Chono and Tenzan right now. Yes. I will also note that not only does Masahiro Chono execute the STF better than Scott Steiner, even though Scott Steiner did it perfectly fine, I, I can confirm that Masahiro Chono does perform the STF better than his quote-unquote protege in WCW, Eric, Eric Watts, Watts. Yeah, from that's... three years earlier on the Clash of the Champions. Uh, go back to episode two of this podcast if you want to hear us make fun of that match. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Tenzan is behind Chono with a hammerlock and Chono kicks Tenzan with a low blow. 
And Saito gets in, hits a big senton for a two count. That was Saito's move. Like even late in his career, he still wrestles on some nostalgia shows uh, in Japan and he can still hit that senton. He doesn't do much else, but he does a, a hell of a solid senton. So he hits a sen- senton, gets the two count, but the, the big move here was the kick out. It was a huge kick out where he basically presses Saito into the air. It was absolutely impressive. Yes, this was something you would have expected from like a. Um, it wasn't quite Yokozuna kicking, uh, kicking <laughs> out from the completely uh, illogical pin of, from Randy Savage in that Royal Rumble and eliminating Randy Savage, but it was far closer to that than I would have expected. So we've got uh, Chono and Saito double teaming on Harada. Chono continues to beat down Harada. Saito back in. Harada is able to get a quick comeback capped off by a diving headbutt off the top rope, but Chono breaks up the pin at two. Chono tries to go up top, but Harada catches him, hooks him for a superplex, and Chono rolls to the outside, and he's able to pull Harada out with him, rams him into the guardrail, then back inside, double-teaming again. Saito holds Harada while Chono comes off, uh, with his flying shoulder block off the top. Saito holds Harada again for a double team, but this time Chono with the big kick. Harada dropped down, and Chono ends up kicking Saito right in the face. This was awesome. Yeah, this is the uh, the Yakuza kick, the Mafia kick, as Dusty Rhodes would call it, whatever you want to call it, an awesome sort of running big boot type of kick that really only Chono has been ever been able to execute in this way. After he accidentally hits Saito, uh, then Chono uh, holds uh, holds Harada. Saito goes for a kick. So, but but and so accidentally I like, hits Chono. Yeah, I like that point. That you know, a lot of times that miscommunication leads to the hot tag, but not here. Chono wouldn't let Chono made the mistake, but then immediately wouldn't let Harada tag. Yes, no, that was a very good point. That that's something you don't see that often, and this actually makes a lot more sense than how we usually see it go, but. Like we said, it, it backfires again, uh, and they they start to argue. But then Tenzan comes in, double clothesline on on Chono and uh, and Saito, double noggin knocker as a throwback to some of these. <laughs> uh, what would uh, what would Ron Trongard have called this? <laughs> a double head crusher or a head cracker? I think head, it was a head cracker. That was this, <laughs> Ron Trongard was in my in my brain calling this a head cracker at this point. <laughs> I don't think any of these men were from Appleton, Minnesota, though. Yeah, and we finally get to see uh, Tenzon laying some chops. I was very excited. We're, we're late in the match. I finally got to see some some good chops from Tenzon. Including the Mongolian chops, which got some of the biggest pops of the entire match. The double chops to the neck, the windmilling double chops that everybody loves. Tenzon sends Saito into the ropes, picks him up for a tombstone pile driver but drops to his ass instead of his knees on it, nails the tombstone for the three count. This was horrifying. This is so what I explained (laughs) at the start of this match that Austin broke Chono's neck, almost ended his career with this very move. And then that Owen Hart broke Austin's neck and almost ended his career with this very move. I did not expect to see this move in this match. This was horrifying. This was apparently the debut of his new finisher called the TTD, the Tenzan Tombstone Driver. 
Yes, which in later years he would do in a much safer way. He would pick <laughs> him up, tombstone position. He would put the one arm like through the legs, like like body slam style, and instead of dropping to his ass, he would drop to his knees in a much safer and much yes. more protected way. He still uses that move today. Thank God he changed how he did that move because this was horrifying. <laughs> Tenzan and Harada are victorious, and after the match, Tenzan and Chono argue as we quickly fade to black. I wanted some more Tenzan and Chono. I was really enjoying that. Yes, this was fun. The interaction between the two of them, whether they were both in the ring or one was on the apron and the other one was, was barking or flashing stares at them, that was the highlight. And I definitely would like to see on subsequent shows how we got from here to uh, Tenzan joining uh, Chono and Hiro Saito to form a triumvirate of sorts. Main event time on the show. IWGP Challenger Finals. Scott Norton against Keiji Muto. Number one contenders match with the winner getting an IWGP title match uh, at uh, on a show at Sumo Hall coming up uh, later in the month. Yes, February 19th, so just 16 days after this show, the winner of this match, Keiji Muto and Scott Flash Norton, would take on the winner of the upcoming match the, on February 4th between uh, Hashimoto Shinya Hashimoto. Yep, exactly, that we talked about. So that was the setup for this. Uh, and for those that don't know, uh, you may not know the name Keiji Muto, uh, if you're not a huge fan of Japanese wrestling, but you may, may know the name. I'm guessing you do know the name of his alter ego, the great Muda who, who spent a lot of time in WCW in 1989 into uh, the, the early part of the 1990s. One of my At this favorites point, of all time. Oh, Just, absolutely. I think I, I've never heard anyone say like they weren't a fan of, of the great Muda. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, yeah. pretty universal. Yeah. What Other guy. than maybe the WCW executives at that, at that time, who, even though he was, Incredibly over in WCW in the early 90s to the point where everyone saw that they should turn him face, but they didn't think that a Japanese wrestler could be a face at that time period. And, you know, the rest is history. One of the many, many, many missed opportunities in the, yeah, exactly, (laughs) in the history of WCW. Uh, At this point, Keiji Muto was using both characters in his career, uh, wrestling more often under his name, Keiji Muto, the straight-laced babyface hero, uh, you know, one of the top guys, one of the top faces in the entire company, one of the most popular guys, if not the most popular guy in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Meanwhile, his alter ego, the great Muda, would come out at certain points for big matches. Uh, the mysterious face painted, misspitting enigma with wild heel tendencies. He was he certainly would uh, not hesitate to grab a chair from under the ring or a wrench or a screwdriver uh, he was quite the character. That was not uh, that was not what we got here, though. We just got pro wrestler Keiji Muto, and he was taking on Scott Norton, who had spent a lot of time in New Japan by this point. But uh, with the the departure of, of guys like Big Van Vader, who you know had gone to WCW and then was not working in New Japan, was actually working uh, for the rival UWFI promotion. Uh, that let more uh, more space for Scott Norton to be able to step in and and try to be the the monster for and heal the the top guy in that role in the company. So and this on. this was this was by the way just months before Scott Norton would join WCW uh, on the first episode of Monday Nitro. So another one of these guys that when you look at the card you think oh part of the talent talent exchange but not really at this point. You know I always 
knew of Scott Norton in his late 90s WCW run, and I I always said, oh, I bet he was better in Japan because he's not great here. Uh, He must have been better in Japan, and I was really excited to see a Scott Norton mid-90s match on New Japan. not impressed. I was not impressed. This really? was every Scott Norton I've ever seen. This I was not uh, not impressed. We'll get into it here. Um, he's huge. I like Norton. I like him, but he. I, I will grant you that Scott Norton to me was always better as the the heavy in a tag team rather than being a a, a featured singles performer. Yeah, he did not uh, do it for me as a featured singles performer, but uh, he he had a presence. He was gigantic. He was a really big dude. Um, Matt it, Matt wrestling early, lots of go behinds, takedowns, mostly Norton in control using his power. Muto, by the way, shooting in for single legs constantly in the first uh, in the first few minutes, single leg takedowns, and from that moment, from pretty much the moment the bell rang, and Keiji Muto goes for a single leg takedown. The thing you notice right away or you're reminded of right away is that no one in the history of pro wrestling has moved in a more unique and cool way around the ring than KG Muto slash the great Muda ever. And there's nobody, there have been lots of guys that have tried to crib parts of his act or his movement, but nobody's ever gotten close. So unique, so distinct, hundred percent. And and I and there's a, a few moments here that uh, bring a smile to my face. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll we'll hit on those in a second. Uh, Norton gets Muto in the corner and big heavy chops, misses an avalanche. Muto tries to hip toss Norton, but eats a big lariat. Too much power early for uh, for Muto to handle. Yes, and that would be a theme throughout this match is Muto going for moves, whether they be slams or hip tosses or anything like that, and Norton putting on the brakes and using a clothesline. The the clothesline, the lariat, whatever you want to call it, that was his primary uh, his primary offense in this match. He, he had to have gone for it and probably hit it most of the time, but at least seven or eight times in this match. Yep, anytime Muto tries offense, uh, Norton lands a, a clothesline and... We had a cool sequence where Muto slides behind Norton and hits a great dropkick to the back, but no effect. Norton turns around and hits a clothesline again. Yes. <laughs> uh, the fans... We also had in this match, the which might be what you're going to, sorry, with the fans, that this was the first time all night that we had loud chants for a yes, particular that's wrestler. exactly what I was about to say. The fans are really behind Muto, and they are chanting for him. They are going crazy. They love this guy. Um, Muto finally hits his first ef- effective offense, uh, working over the arm of Norton on the mat. Based off of a missed clothesline from Scott Norton, Norton goes for a short-arm clothesline, and Muto's able to transition it uh, cross arm breaker first and then into the short arm scissors. And while he's got the arm, Norton picks Muto up. He's still holding on to the arm, and then Norton dumps him over his head to the mat. But Muto pops right back up and goes right back onto the arm hold. Really, yes, this really was like awesome. It. This was Muto knowing coming into this match that his, his chance of winning was to be able to take away the power of Scott Norton. So... At every opportunity he got, he was going to go for that arm. He, he like you said, he, he pops right back up, goes to the goes for the Fujiwara armbar, transitions that into the cross arm breaker, 
but Norton is able to get the ropes. And then I'm guessing after this, Jeremy, is one of your, because uh, I know it was one of mine, one of your favorite moves in this match, getting to see Keiji Muto do something that nobody else in wrestling is able to do. No, we see Muto hit the ropes and drop the elbow in classic great Muto fashion. Just the, the, the way he moves, the way he... T- drops that elbow with such force it's uh it's classic and uh it's it, it brought a smile to my face as soon as i saw it yes absolutely it was uh, christened by jim ross as the power drive elbow here the announcers call it the flashing elbow either way it is awesome and it's one of those things that i don't recommend any other wrestler try because no. every time i've seen them do it they just look like <laughs> they just look like they don't know what they're doing this is not something <laughs> anyone else can pull off but KG Muto slash the great Muda. Norton's able to, uh, he's able to roll and, and get Muto to the floor. Uh, puts Muto's throat across the guardrail on the outside and begins raining down elbows to the back of the head. That I was, love this. This was nasty and, and it was just, the coolest again, thing Scott Norton did this entire <laughs> match. This was it. This was the cool thing he did. I, <laughs> I would largely agree with you. This is a little thing I'd like to see brought back. Yes, 100%. And uh, so he ends up picking up Mudo and ramming him back first into the post. Back into the ring. Norton's working over the back now. Heavy we get a big Muto chant, by the way, again, the second time in this match. After that, that backbreaker into the post, the crowd is, is very much behind their hero. And Norton's laying in heavy forearms to the kidney area and back. Uh, goes to press slam him over the top rope to the ramp. But... Mudo lands very safely. Like he lands like on his feet and just rolls. And it yes. was uh, uh, it was totally fine. Not scary. This made me. This made me happy. I, <laughs> I see this and I think of the the torture that Keiji Muto put his knees <laughs> his through knees, over yep. the years doing the moonsault. So the point to where in the later years of him doing the moonsault, he would like twist and land on his hip, and his knees were compl- his knees have been shot for. I mean, his knees were shot by the early two thousands. He just had, I think it was last year, he had double knee replacement surgery in his back uh, as a uh, as a, a pro wrestler here and there. He's, he doesn't wrestle regularly, but he wrestles often enough with completely reconstructed knees. But I was, I was thrilled to see something like this where he took it in the safest way humanly possible. Absolutely safe. Uh, Norton follows him out onto the ramp uh, outside the ring, but Muto counters with his reverse spin kick. And then he hits the ropes and hits a bulldog on the ramp. And Mudo then goes all the way up the ramp by the entranceway. And About gets 30, his, 40, 50 feet at least. Yeah, gets this huge running start. But Norton counters with, again, a big lariat. <laughs> this was great, though, because so Muda, Muto, particularly as the Muda character, on a lot of the big shows at the Tokyo Dome, shows are the big ramp. He would do this. He would, he would, you know, he'd get a guy, you know, in a, in a prone position and then run all the way down the ramp and run and go flying with a huge clothesline. Maybe the most memorable one that I can remember is from, I think it was from the, the IWGP versus NWA world title match. It was on the WCW uh, new Japan super show two, I think in 1992 uh, or maybe it was 93. Either way uh, he does that hits the clothesline He's running so fast and his momentum carries him so, so far that he, the clothesline he hits, it's maybe 10 feet away from the ring on the ramp. He goes 
rolling. He does like a couple barrel rolls, rolls into the ropes. And when he gets up, the force of him like rolling after hitting this clothesline has completely wiped probably 70% of the face paint off of his face. (laughs) So that was an awesome visual on that show. And then it was cool here to see that get countered. Granted, maybe it would have been nice to see something other than another clothesline, but it <laughs> it worked and it uh, it it knocked him out or almost out. He was in a he was in a difficult way after getting hit with this counter clothesline on the ramp. Still on the outside, Norton charges at Muda, who signs he sidesteps Norton. Norton crashes into the guardrail, which allows Muda to do his handspring back elbow on the outside of the ring hitting Norton as he's propped up against the rail. That was so cool. I did not expect to see him bust that out on the floor. Yes, that was that was fantastic. One of the other great Keiji Muto moves that a lot of other people try to do and nobody does quite as well as him. Uh, not getting enough of it on the first time, even though he did land all of it, he wanted more. He throws Norton back into the ring, uh, goes for it again. This time, uh, Norton catches him with a waist lock in the corner but you're expecting at this point for him to get, you know, just launch with a German suplex. But Mudo quickly counters the counter into a Fujiwara armbar and back into the cross arm breaker. I really enjoyed this sequence. Yep. Broke Norton down again. He's got him down and great facials by Mudo as he's cranking away on that armbar. That was yeah. just just awesome. This was this was, you know, in full babyface mode here, and the the place was going crazy. He knew this was his chance. This was this was his chance after getting, you know, physically dominated and decimated for a lot of this match. He knew that getting that iron bar and getting a chance to submit him, that might be his ticket to February 19th and a shot at the IWGP heavyweight title. But unfortunately for him, Norton gets the ropes. Uh, Muto goes for the Fujiwara again, but Norton tries to fight him off. Yep, they both trade shots. Muto cannot hurt Norton. Uh, big drop kick, no effect. Muto takes a lariat, but he pops back up. Gets Norton down. He goes to the top rope. Norton gets up and eats a big drop kick from the top, but he won't go down. He's teetering, but still standing. Muto goes back up top again. A flying forearm from the top finally gets Norton down this time. Muto sees Norton down, so of course... In classic Mudo fashion, sprints to the top rope again. Nobody does it faster. Yes. Nobody sprints to the top rope like he does. His this... acceleration, his like, <laughs> there are guys who are faster. Uh, there are guys who are quicker, but there's nobody who goes from a, in his prime that goes from a dead stop to just a, a blur of speed than Keiji Muto. This time hits his big moonsault. He didn't get all of it. He almost no. overshot his target there. Um, and the well, he definitely did. The thing with Mudo is that unlike some guys who would have the, they do the moonsault, like we talked about on the the Vengeance episode, Kurt Angle, he has the guy relatively close to the corner, and granted, he never hits it, but the idea is to hit it. He goes high up into the air and then arcs down. Whereas Muto, it was it was, and again, this is why it destroyed his knees doing force. this hundreds of times. It is all force towards the middle of the ring. He did not have him anywhere near the middle of the ring. So he does the moonsault here. He connects a little bit with his head and the announcers, you can hear the Japanese announcers calling it a, you know, saying a moonsault headbutt. And so they're covering there by saying that, you know, it wasn't a regular moonsault. It was a moonsault headbutt. And the thing I loved about this 
is that I highly doubt if he had fully connected with the moonsault that Norton would have kicked out at one. Right. But he kicked out at one here. I thought that was great. Yeah, he didn't even go for a full cover here. Almost just puts his hand over him for a cover, and Norton immediately just kicks out at one. Norton's goes up to the second turnbuckle on the inside, but Mudo's up and drop kicks Norton. So he's sitting on the top turnbuckle now. And Mudo hits a huge run off the top rope, and the fans go absolutely ballistic. They, they're going this was, crazy. This was probably the biggest pop of the entire show. And you have to go back to, again, 1995. Not many guys uh, outside of Jushin Liger were doing top rope Frankensteiners, and nobody uh, outside of Keiji Muto was, as a heavyweight was doing a top rope Frankensteiner. Again, on a guy this size of Scott Norton. So this was, that was yeah. what's extra impressive is Norton uh, taking the flip over for that. Only a two count. It was a great near fall. People really thought that might have been the finish. And Mudo, like we just mentioned, sprints back to the top again. He goes for another moonsault. Bad camera work here. This is the bad camera work we were talking On about. On purpose, I think, again, though. he. <laughs> so what happens here is that Muto goes for the moonsault Norton, instead of rolling out, like rolling away, Norton rolls in to try to avoid it. He rolls towards the corner, but he doesn't roll enough. And Muto kind of catches him, kind of doesn't. He, he, Clearly, he hits him on his back. Like Norton yes. is on his belly and gets, uh, and Muto crashes onto Norton's back. Um, well, I think he was supposed to completely miss this completely because then the next. This, yeah. The next spot is Scott Norton going for a power bomb, and so usually if you get hit with a moonsault, you're not going to be you're the one the coming first up. Man get... up, yeah, yeah, and certainly not the first man coming up with like a huge offensive maneuver, not like a forearm or a kick, but going for one of your finishers. So I think that's I think they chose the camera shot that didn't show it as much as the one that would have shown uh, the the worst view of it. But yeah, either way, um, not not the best part of this match. No, no, so he goes to powerbomb Mudo, who counters it into another Rana, almost killing himself. Uh, Mudo yes. almost spikes his own head on the way over. But uh, after the Rana, he's on top of, of Norton, like kneeling across his, his shoulders, and he's got his arms in the air celebrating. Yeah. And, and the place is, is counting, and Norton kicks out just before three, and everybody in the building thought that that was it. Yes, this was a 2.999 repeating count uh, kick out here. Much more something you would see in modern wrestling with the long, long, long two, almost a three. But yeah, this this was the, everyone bought this as being the finish, even though it ended up not being that. No, because Norton picks up Muto, running power slam. Muto kicks out, and Norton goes up to the top rope, hits a shoulder block off the top, then another power slam, Gets the three count, 20 minutes, 31 seconds. Mudo was loved. I wanted Norton to be better. I was not impressed with him, but I love everything about Keiji Muto. What an awesome, fun time. Yeah, this was a very good match. It wasn't great. Uh, The thing about this match to me, and it wasn't exactly the same, but this, in a lot of ways, was very reminiscent of the Sting versus Vader match from Starcade 92 the king of cable final where you had this wasn't quite as pronounced in terms of like that match it was just brilliant uh wrestling brilliant storytelling with the announcers where 
Vader just dominated Sting, and the whole point of Sting's strategy was to just take as much punishment as possible and hope that uh, Vader would tire himself out, and then he did, and Sting was able to get the win. I felt like this told kind of a similar story, and the match was, was worked somewhat similarly, but um, Scott Norton, as, as solid as he is and as, as good as he can be at times, he's no big Van Vader. No. Um, and so this was, again, this was very good. But I, uh, it, it wasn't. It, it didn't necessarily reach the level that you know. I think either of us were hoping it would be. But still, fine, good, oh, definitely, absolutely, a, really a fun enjoyed time. it. I and and if you want to scratch the KG Mudo itch, this is a totally fun match to watch. Absolutely, yes, I would. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, best match, man. I, I mean, I really liked the main event, even though there are a few issues with it. But I will say that I think my favorite match on the show, which I did not necessarily expect going into it, Norio Hanaga and Dean Malenko for the IWG, IWGP Junior Heavyweight title. I thought that was just a perfectly worked match that went exactly as long as it should have. And just, uh, yes, there's not a single bad thing I could say about it. And we got to see prime Dean Malenko. I have that also as my best match. I did have, I did say the main event probably would have been my best match if we didn't have those two big uh, missed moonsault spots there. I think yes. if, if that was a little tighter, that probably would have been my best match. But uh, yeah, nothing to complain about with uh, Malenko and Hanaga, and I enjoyed every second of that. And looking through, trying to look through the eyes of 1995 and the juniors of 90, 1995, uh, absolutely spectacular. That was fantastic. Definitely. As far as a worse match, there was nothing on this show that was terrible, no. uh, like we've talked about on other shows. But to me, pretty clearly, uh, the worst match was Hashimoto and Enos. And again, yes. it's eight minutes. There was nothing wrong. There was it wasn't nothing offensive. Bad about it. No, no, it was fine. But yeah. And this show, it was uh, it was just a nothing. I wanted, uh, you know, I was hoping this wasn't going to be uh, a, 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 a you know Hashimoto kind of phoning it in here. Uh, so I, I I was a little disappointed. I didn't get to see more of a, a more of a showcase there. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely my my worst match on this show. And that's it. We are at the end. So I want to uh, remind everyone that every single Thursday. We will post on our social media what event that week's podcast will cover. So make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at Wrestle at Random. You can also give us a like, facebook.com slash wrestling at random. And of course, wrestling at random.com is the website that has the entire back catalog of this podcast. We mentioned no less than five or six of our previous episodes in today's show. So if you want to go back and hear those, you can find the links to all of those at wrestlingatrandom.com. We are rapidly, by the way, reaching uh, full road trip status for our back catalog. If you're a new subscriber, (laughs) you, you could traverse a decent part of the country by this point. If you're in the United States or if you're in, you know, you're in Europe or wherever you are, you could have quite the travel, whether you're driving, whether you're on a plane, whether you're taking public transportation, uh, you could spend your entire day with us getting caught up. So uh, don't forget about that option as well. Absolutely. And and make sure that you subscribe, rate and review if you do. This helps others find our show. We rely solely on word of mouth and you telling your wrestling fan friends about us. Tell your lapsed fan friends, people who used to watch wrestling but don't, this is the show for them. We've got a lot of 
you know, everything is, is, is from back in the day here and it's, it's random shows that, that you might be interested in from that time period. You might've seen, you might want to reminisce with us or it was on your list. You heard about it, but you never saw it. And, uh, just us taking you down, come join that, that trip down memory lane with us. And so make sure you spread the word, subscribe. So you don't miss an episode and interact with the show on social media. That's the best way we reply to every single message, tweet, DM we get. So make sure you hit us up there. With that, Absolutely. we're going to wrap it up. So this was a, a a heck of a fun show from my perspective. Like I said at the open, I had been waiting with bated breath for a, <laughs> a, a New Japan show to finally get chosen by the randomizer. And this was a fun one because it wasn't, uh, while it was a big show, this wasn't a Tokyo Dome show or a G1 final. So we kind of got to slip into uh, the regular rhythm of New Japan with a, a big show setting up other big shows. So hopefully... Uh, Somewhere down the line, we'll get another one of these. Absolutely. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Adam, thanks for joining us. Definitely. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you again next time.